0: final sentences of the hymn that we just sung let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill god's truth abideth still his kingdom stands forever that is in fact the the summary of what i seek to open up for us as we come To the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 10 to verse 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. From the beginning of our study, of our uh, walking through the, the Sermon on the Mount, or this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which we commonly call the Beatitudes, we have seen that Jesus wants to, our Lord Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear to all who are listening to them, to him back then and who, all who are listening to these words 2,000 years later, he wants to make it abundantly clear that these blessings, these uh, characteristics are the, the characteristics that define the child of God, the children of the kingdom of God. These characteristics are not something that comes natural to man, but they are markers of the gracious work of the Spirit in us, in you, and in me. You possess every one of them. If you are truly gods, you possess every single one of these elements. Of course, none of us possess it to the fullest, in its perfection, but kind of like the fruit of the spirit that Paul speaks of, it's not uh, the the beatitudes are not a, a list of things that we can pick and choose and and retain what we want and and do away with what we don't like. These are not a, a, a list. This is not a list of things that we can uh, work towards attaining choosing which ones we prefer. Oh, I'm very meek, but I'm not really good at being pure. No. The point that Jesus is saying here is that these are the markers of those who belong to him, who are citizens and subjects of his kingdom. These are the markers of those who have been transformed by the Spirit through his word, of those who have been Uh, sanctified, the word sanctified is is to be set apart, of those who have been sanctified by the Spirit, of those who have been set apart by God, of those who are being transformed into the image and the likeness of Christ. These are not things that we pull ourselves up towards. These are things that we humble ourselves before the Lord, that He may grow in us. And what God is doing, in showing us this, is showing that it is all good. It is, a, I say this uh, respectfully, it is a beautiful thing that God is working in us. And it is total, totally, as we've seen in the last, in the other beatitudes, it is totally the opposite of what the world perceives as being good and beautiful. The world doesn't see being poor in spirit as a good thing or being meek or or mourning as a good thing. The world does not like hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's too prude, too puritanical. The world world says that being merciful is is something for the weak-minded, that you need to be ruthless. And even the, the the beatitude, as we saw, of being a peacemaker... No matter how the world uh, says uh, that they love peace, the reality is it is all too obvious that the world does not like peace. Whether that be uh, people who wa- love to see warring nations or warring amongst ourselves, the world is, a, is always at odds with one another. And in the same way, blessed are those who are persecuted. This is counterintuitive and countercultural to everything that this world believes I believe it was uh, John MacArthur, the, the famous American preacher. He, he, he says, happy are those who are harassed. That's basically what Jesus is saying here in a more vernacular way. Bless, uh, happy are those who are harassed. Blessed are those who are persecuted. The world doesn't believe this. The world cannot grasp this. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, and it is why it is at the end of this this list. If we live in the holiness that God has called us to live, the world will not love us. In fact, the world will hate us. The world will not accept us. The world will reject us. It isn't inevitable that it will do so. Why? Because exactly of the fact that these are two completely opposite worldviews, like the, 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 the positive charge and the negative uh, uh, I was going to use a bad illustration now but they, they cannot reconcile they are polar opposites they cannot come together I was going to use the magnet illustration and then I realized that magnets actually the polars attract each other so never mind that I was going to say that But what God loves, the world hates. And the more God is seen in the lives of His children, the more the world will hate the children of God. The more they see something of Christ in you, in me, in us, the more the world will be opposite and opposed to us. Why? Because the world is under the power and the influence of the evil one. Darkness rules. The world hates everything that is truly beautiful and truly good that points to Christ. Those who mourn for sins... Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are poor in spirit, meek and gentle like our Lord Jesus was, will face exactly the same attitude that our Lord Jesus received. And this is the condemnation John says, that the light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Why do they hate you? Why does the world hate uh, uh, Christians? And I know in the West, I'll say a little bit in a moment, I know in the West we have had it very easy for, for, for a few centuries now. But why does in general the world hate Christianity? Because it shines a light on their sin. It shines a light on their unlawful deeds. And I would say that is why uh, this beatitude is safe to last. Because it is, a, in a sense, a fruit, a result of all the other beatitudes being displayed to a sinning world. And as I said... This is not just mere theoretical, uh, scholarly, academical kind of thinking. This is actually what perhaps the most relevant beatitude for us to come to uh, to terms with and to grasp at this time for us as a as a church in the West. As I said, we the last two hundred, three hundred years we've had it really easy, haven't we? Christianity, if it was uh, not. Uh, ...fully accepted true Christianity... ...it was at least tolerated... ...it was at least uh, in some way... uh, ...culturally... uh, ...beneficial to be a Christian... ...if you were a politician, for instance... ...you you would want to have some kind of... uh, ...Christianity tagged on to your your profile... ...because that would uh, gain you some votes... ...that's quickly becoming quite the opposite... Thinking recently in uh, in the elections up north in Scotland, the fact that one of the uh, one of the candidates was a Christian actually probably lost her the election or at least put her under scrutiny that that otherwise in other, in another generation would would have gone unnoticed. That's the shift that is happening in our own days, and the shift is not stopping. In fact, I would say it's increasing. So we really need to come to terms with the promise that is made for us in this, in this beatitude. And again, this is not theoretical. I truly believe this. And I, I, I'm not a prophet or a son of the prophet, as they say. But I truly believe that. I won't put a time frame on it. But in our lifetimes, many of us will come to experience something that Christians in the West haven't experienced for maybe 400, 500 years. I truly believe this for various reasons to which we'll get to in the course of uh, of this sermon. But firstly, let's look at the passage. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be aloof or unaware of what it takes to be his disciple. He wants us to count the cost of discipleship, of being citizens of the kingdom. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And in this beatitude, Jesus, uh, our Lord, teaches us three important things. First of all, the reality of persecution. Secondly, the attitude that the citizens of the kingdom have towards persecution And thirdly, and lastly, the blessing, the reward to those who are persecuted. So first things first, as I say, the reality of persecution. Even though we are looking at three verses, this beatitude is basically one. It is debated by some commentators if if these are two beatitudes or one beatitude, but I think they are the same. And the reason why I think they are the same, because they are dealing with the one and the same subject. They're dealing both in verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12, uh, the two blesseds that we see there, they are dealing with persecution. Another reason why I think it is the same beatitude, although it's two blesseds two Beatitudes in a sense, but it's the same one explained in a different way, is because being persecuted for Christ's sake or being persecuted for righteousness sake, righteousness' sake is basically the same thing. It is indistinguishable. As you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the only true righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. And as you are persecuted for Christ's sake, you are persecuted because you are seeking to live righteously. And thirdly, because the blessing imparted to both of them in both of them the promise being made is exactly the same the kingdom of heaven is being offered to which we might ask why does the Lord uh, why does our Lord uh, repeat himself or or uh, restate the same beatitude I would argue that it's because there is a double blessing attached to this beatitude There is a a sort of a a promise of a double portion of of reward to those who suffer for for the faith of Christ. There is a double blessedness. Jesus is telling us here that for following him and living up to the call of God that God has given to us, we will suffer persecution. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how, but it is that we will suffer it. It is not always, it is not in the same manner in every single time and in every single age, but we will experience persecution in some way, shape, or form. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, he he has a a beautiful exposition of the Beatitudes, uh, and he says, "Our Lord Christ, uh, our Lord Christ would have us reckon the cost." And he quotes from Luke fourteen twenty-seven and twenty-eight, "Which which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he we he have enough to finish it?" Our Lord would want us to count the cost. So, what is it to be persecuted? Well, to be persecuted can take many different forms, as I said. To be persecuted, the word there, and I'll bore you with a little bit of Greek, means to be vexed, to be molested. Uh, uh, yes, it can be, mean to persecute someone with a sword, but it can also mean to, to put someone under judgment, bring him to the, uh, a tribunal. It can, yes, it can mean to pursue someone to death, But it also can be just someone who is nagging, like uh, Thomas Watson says, like a pricking briar. And that's why the church is described in in the Song of Solomon as a lily among the thorns. It can be an attack on your life or it can be an attack on your honor. And I think both of them are are constrained or are contained in this passage. It can be with weapons. And throughout the centuries, the, the church has experienced this. Believers have been persecuted everywhere, in every age. Paul said, as many as desire to live lo- godly uh, lives in Christ, they will be persecuted. Paul after being stoned in Lystra in his first missionary journey, he doubles back after he 's finished going as far as he could on that first missionary journey, and as he 's making his way back to, to Antioch, he, he comes back through the, through the churches where he was once stoned, and he says, "If one must enter through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of God. He encourages them by saying this. But well, Paul, he was very uh, familiar with persecution as he's writing to the Philippians from prison, as he's suffering for the sake of Christ, as he's suffering for righteousness' sake. He says, for to us it has been given to suffer for Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer a gift, he says. In prison, writing a letter, perhaps the most joyful letter that is, uh, that is written. It's called "The, the, 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 the Epistle of Joy," is written in the most dire circumstances. And what does he say there? All of this that I'm going through, Philippians. It is a gift from God. Oh, that we would grasp this, that we would understand this, because I think he understood the blessedness of being persecuted. But it can be more than just swords and, and, and physical persecution. And our Lord Jesus, I think, may, opens that up for us. It can be persecution of the tongue. The character of the Christian being intact. Opposition, not with the sword, but with the, with the tongue of the, of the impious. The tongue like, that is like a fire and a poison, this, the book of Psalms says, uh, like a drawn sword. And how does Jesus say this? They will revile you. They will speak all kinds of evil against you. They will lie about you. False. They will uh, speak all kinds of evil falsely for my sake. Oh, the, the Christians, they know this. In scripture, we find Paul being called a babbler, an imposter, a false apostle. Throughout history, uh, Christians have been called cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. have been called uh, rebels, atheists, uh, political dissenters, rebellious. And they were never persecuted. I'll say this towards the end. Uh, but they were never persecuted because they were Christians outright. It wasn't that, oh, you're going to be put to death because you're a Christian. No, there was always some kind of twisting the, 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 their attitudes to make them seem like a danger to society. From the very very beginning of Christianity. Well, I would say from the very beginning of uh, of the history of the world. What is it that we find in Genesis 3 as mankind falls into sin? As the the curse of the fall falls upon mankind? What does God say? I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that's the history of this world. Uh, A history of enmity. Between the seed of the woman, the citizens of the kingdom, the children of God, and the seed of the serpent. John says, it's the story of Cain and Abel. Right there, the first generation after Adam and Eve, what do we see? Strife and and, persecution. Persecution. John says about Cain for his works were evil and his brother's uh, and his brother was righteous that's why he sought to kill him why because of his brother's righteousness Isaac and Ishmael the story of those two brothers what does Paul say in Galatians he says that he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit Even so now also. It is the story of the New Testament church. Think of any apostle, any of them. Peter, imprisoned a few times, recorded for us in scripture. Church tradition says that he was crucified upside down. The apostle James, we spoke about him this morning put to death at the edge of Herod, the grip of the first sword. In scripture, the Thessalonian church founded in the midst of persecution. The letter to the Hebrews, a a sermon that most most likely was a sermon preached to Hebrew Jewish believers, Jewish Christians suffering persecution that were actually considering to go back to Judaism just to flee from persecution. To avoid persecution. And it's a, a loving fatherly plea by the author of Hebrews. Pleading with them not to turn back. How does the New Testament end? Who wrote the, new, the last book of the New Testament? John of Patmos. He is there in Patmos. Isolated. In exile. Why? Because he was a Christian. Because he was a danger to society. And the whole story of the book of Revelation, the whole unfolding of the plan of God in the book of Revelation is about persecution. It is about that strife between the dragon and the woman and the seed of the woman. It is the story of the Christian church throughout the generations that the apostles, the early disciples, they were well acquainted with persecution. This is not fairy tale, this is not myth, this is the reality of those who came before us, persecuted out of Jerusalem, scattered around the Middle East, the first Christians, considered to be the trash of the world, the scum of the earth. How different is that attitude from the attitude of our own day? Does that convict you? that you don't experience and you don't know something of this? To me, it does. Why is it that we live and our, our way of our Christianity seems so disconnected to everyone who came before us? Does that not cause you to wonder? It should. It does. It does. Today, we, we live in a uh, Christianity, seems to be a uh, celebrity driven. We want to prop up the next celebrity preacher. We want to, to have manufactured celebrities. If it's not a preacher, maybe an artist or it's like how disconnected this is from the Christianity of the New Testament and from the Christianity of every true believer that came after them. I'll quote John MacArthur he says that today if Paul was a a preacher this is how he would be introduced Gamaliel University graduate, a polyglot personal friend of many kings world's greatest church planter greatest evangelist of the century prolific author, given up for dead rapture to heaven but then you look at how Paul introduces himself in scripture i won't read the whole uh the whole quote here but from 2 corinthians chapter 11 I am more in labors abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes. These are the credentials of of this apostle of God. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Day and a night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. And it goes on and on and on. And that's just the early church. I have, I'm going to have to move forward, but I have a list here of different church, uh, uh, different Christians throughout the ages Think of the early church. It's not recorded for us uh, after the the book of Acts. Think about how Nero, how the uh, Diocletian, uh, all those persecutions, how they were uh, dressed up in uh, in robes uh, uh, of animals and fed to the dogs. How the Christians were fed to hungry lions. How Nero drenched Christians in oil. To light up his gardens in Rome. This is not fairy tale, this is not myth. This is what happened. The Roman Empire, the thousands upon thousands that were killed in those days. But then even go further, come to the, to the pre Reformation times. Savaranola, uh, Jan Hus, Savunerola, Jan Hus, John Wycliffe. And then you come to the Reformation, Luther, uh, uh, Tyndale, the the namesake of this church, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer, the seventy thousand French Huguenots that were killed under uh, under uh, Catherine de Medici on Saint Bartholomew's Day, on the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre. All of them. Think of the the Christians all throughout the world today. In communist countries like China, like North Korea, in Muslim countries where Islam rules supreme and they don't have to deal with bad press, where Christians are seriously opposed and have to go into hiding. We tend to think of them as the ones to be pitied and we should pray for them and we should plead with God to relieve them of their strain. But honestly, as I think of all of this, perhaps the ones to be pitied are us. We're the ones to be pitied because we become enamored with this world. But it's changing. We live in a postmodern society. A society that is becoming more and more irrational, more and more opposed to the to Christianity. it, it is not too far from, from from happening the point where someone somewhere well people are already speaking like this, but somewhere some someone somewhere in, in the realms of of political decisions will come in and say, You know those you won't call us Christians. You will say, that sect, those, those crazy fan- fanatics, those lunatics that, that say that uh, transgenderism or homosexuality is a sin. You know them. They're not really Christians. We all know that Christ is really about love and tolerance. They, they are just lunatics. You know them? They're a threat to society. And you know what we do with threats to society? In our day and age, the same day, thing that they did throughout the centuries. You do away with him. One way or the other. It's not that far away. I think a step was taken a few months ago. When the national church of this land. Embraced just a little bit more. Uh, the homosexuality. Blessing their unions. Not marrying them. But you know what that does? That shifts the spotlight now fully to us. To those who seek to speak about the righteousness of Christ. Seek to live according to it. It's not too far away. But I've, I've spent too much already in dealing with the reality of persecution. In our own, in, in, in history, in our world, in our day. There is persecution that is perhaps not as forceful as I said. And we face it in our workplaces. But What should be our attitude towards persecution? Number two. I know I'm just getting to number two now. uh, But I'll seek to, to be quicker. What should be our attitude? Well, our Lord Jesus says, we are blessed. Do you see yourself as blessed? You should. Do you rejoice when you're persecuted? I know it's hard, but it's not a suggestion. It is a command. Why are we blessed and why are we to rejoice? Because of what our Lord Jesus says. Because of the the way we live, and if we are truly persecuted for righteousness' sake, to be persecuted for wrongdoings, it is not a blessed thing. Jesus, our Lord, is quite clear. It's persecuted for righteousness' sake, for his sake. Why are we blessed? Because if we live at peace with the world, then we we have some really serious uh, inner uh, looking to do if you were of the world our lord says the world would love its own does the world love you because if you live at peace with the world if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness if you are not pure in heart uncompromising in the things of god If you're not those things, you will be at peace with with the world. You really won't be at peace with God, will you? The Lord says, you're blessed, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. This is like a double emphasis here in the original. It's rejoice with great rejoicing. Be exceedingly rejoicing with great joy. Instead of being sad, instead of being self-pitying, instead of of, of weeping about your own situation, rejoice. Why is it, you know, Nicholas Ridley, the namesake of this church, or, well, sort of, by by secondaries, the namesake of this church. uh, You know what he did when he got to the cross or to the stake where he was burnt? He knelt down with, you, Latimer, and he kissed the stake. Why? Because it was the greatest thing that had ever happened to him. To be counted worthy of suffering for Christ's sake. Although he was going to his death. He was rejoicing. That's just him. Throughout history. Great examples of this. In scripture, Peter. They are beaten by the Synedrum. By the Jewish uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what do they do? They went out from the presence of the Sinedrim, Jumping and, and leaping for Joy. Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. How is this possible to do this? You might ask. Seems like a very difficult thing. It is. It is impossible to rejoice upon receiving persecution. It is something that only God by his grace can accomplish in us. But he does. Because he is working in us. He is the author, he is the finisher of our faith. Again, I'll quote to you uh, from Thomas Watson. Our religion must cost us tears of repentance and the blood of persecution, he says. But the cross comes before the crown. Suffering precedes glory. We must enter the kingdom through many tribulations. Our Lord Jesus said, if the world hates you, You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So, what does our Lord say? How we face persecution? With profound joy. We don't seek revenge. We don't, be, we don't act in a bad mood. We don't f- slump down to self-pity. We don't lick our own wounds. Neither do we deny our pain like the Stoics. And I'll say this as well. Neither do we uh, uh, enjoy suffering. Because this is the danger of all that I'm saying now. Neither do we enjoy suffering like masochists. That's not the point. We don't rejoice because we're suffering and for suffering's sake. We rejoice because that means something in the long run. We rejoice and we exult and we are exceedingly God. Not because we are in pain right now, but because of what this pain means for us in the present and in the future. What it means about us in the present and what it will mean for us in the future in the presence of his glory so what does it mean you may ask number three what is the blessing then the divine reward to those who are persecuted is blessedness superlative happiness as some have translated it a a, a happiness that is full copious and that is eternal that is what is being promised to us a possession of a glorious kingdom and it, begins, it ends exactly where the first beatitude began. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We rejoice because our blessing is not in this life God does not repay or reward us for our persecution in this life with a, with a nice car, with a, with a nice bank account, with, with the accolades clapping and cheering for us. That's not the point. How many martyrs have died and they remain anonymous to us? But they are known to God. And that's what matters. God knows them, He looks down from heaven. And he sees all of them. And the one suffering looks ahead and up towards heaven and looks ahead towards the kingdom of God and knows that he has a crown waiting for him on the other side. And that's what causes the rejoicing. And I know it's... It, I'm speaking of the extremes of persecution, but I honestly believe that we, were, we are careening down that, that... Not careening down, because... Honestly, it's the greatest blessing that, the church, that God could give the church at this moment. Maybe it will liven us up. Maybe it will stop us from being so lackadaisical in, everything, in anything and everything about our faith. Paul said, just before he was taken to be, I believe, traditionally he said that he was beheaded by Nero might be wrong, I'm quoting from memory here. Just before he was taken uh, to be beheaded by, by Nero, or a few months perhaps, before he wrote a letter to Timothy. And he says, The time of my departure has come, and the crown of righteousness is laid up for me. I'll tell you the story of a, of a Christian... Martyr, very well known one, Chrysostom. He was called the Golden Mouth one. He was perhaps the greatest preacher of the early church, perhaps one of the greatest preachers that ever walked this earth. He was arrested by the Emperor at the around the fifth century. I believe it was Emperor Arcadius. And Emperor Arcadius threatened him. And he said, I'm gonna banish you. I'm gonna banish you from the Empire. You know what Chrysostom said, ever the golden mouth he was? He said, Your Majesty, you cannot banish me, for this earth belongs to my Father. So the Emperor said to him, Well, I'll have you killed then. And he said, You cannot kill me, for my life is kept with Christ in God. So Arcadius turned and he threatened him, Well, I'll not, I cannot kill you. I'll have all your goods confiscated. He said, well, that is not possible as well. Because all my treasures are in heaven. Oh, I will alienate you from men and I will make you that you will have no friends and no one around you. And Chrysostom says, that you cannot do as well. For I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will by no means leave you nor forsake you. That's what happened in Chrysostom. I'm paraphrasing, of course. There's probably a hundred different accounts of this. But this happened. Our Lord Jesus says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Who were before you. I won't go into that now, but I'll go into it. By saying I won't go into it, I, I, it's basically saying I'll go into it. Our Lord Jesus, who so often the accusation by the critics say that this idea that Jesus Christ was, was God was a later invention, invented in the 3rd or 4th century, the, the, the divinity of Christ who was never there. Look at his words. It seems to me that he's equating himself with God the Father. Or he's equating himself with God, not God the Father. He's equating himself with God. Because the prophets were not persecuted for, for the sake of Christ. They were persecuted for God's sake. And Christ is saying, it's exactly the same thing. If you are persecuted for my sake. But uh, tangent, uh, leave it at that now. Brothers and sisters, we will face persecution. I have no doubts about it. Whether it be in great form, like many of our brethren, are privileged enough to suffer, or whether the more uh, surreptitious and 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 uh, still difficult to bear uh, form of opposition in in terms of character attacks, we are in the brink of facing. Increasing persecution in our day and age. And don't get me wrong. Persecution is an evil thing. It is not good in and of itself. But we have a God that in his wisdom and in his goodness, in his faithfulness, what men men mean for evil, he means for good. That's the point. It's not for us to be masochists. And it is better to suffer in this life to have an extra weight of glory in heaven than to live this life without knowing what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ. Don't get me wrong. We have so such a wrong idea of persecution. Again, I, I said this and I'll say it again. Because I won't really want to drive this point home. I think it is my duty as your pastor. Don't often say this like this, but I think it is my duty as your pastor. The persecution that is coming, we will not be persecuted because Christianity has been outlawed. Christianity will still exist in this nation. It's just a more tolerable veneer of Christianity. We will be persecuted when it comes. Whether in our lifetimes or, in the, or the Lord returns beforehand, and we pray it would. We will be persecuted because we're fanatical lunatics, because we hate uh, uh, everyone and anyone. We will be considered enemies of the state, bigoted, bigots, narrow-minded individuals. Stupid people who have no sense of love and of, of tolerance. And I say this because your suffering will not be noble at the time of your suffering for Christ's sake. We so often think, oh, it will be so noble. There will be, there will be people and uh, accolades. No. But that's why it is important for us to fill our minds and to understand uh, and to know the, the word of God in these times. This is no game. I think if you don't take anything else, I know I said this earlier today with speaking to the children, if you don't take anything else from this sermon, brother and sister, understand this, Christianity is not a game. It's not a a cherry on top of an otherwise very nice life that you live. It was never meant to be like that. And if, you've, if you think it is like that, uh, you need a wake-up call. And perhaps the wake-up call that God is going to give us is persecution. And yet we are to pray that we, for our governors, for those in authority, that we may live quiet and peaceful lives. But maybe that's what will usher in a new age in the, in the Christian church, in this land. And Perhaps that's what we need. And when it does come, not so much an if, but I think uh, it is truly coming, consider this. It is but a light and momentary affliction. It is but a light and momentary affliction in light of the eternal reward of the kingdom of heaven that is promised to us. The sufferings of the time are not worthy, of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us. That's, that's the word of God. Let us remember this. And may God through his spirit grant us the wisdom, the discernment, the capacity to discriminate and understand these things. So that if we are indeed called to suffer, in days to come, we may do it with, a, with joy in our hearts with gladness in our, in our lives. And may we find comfort and full consolation in this glorious beatitude.